at our last parents' weekend, a conversation came up around video games, video game addiction, addiction to the internet, things like that. And I've had the privilege of working with kids who struggle with the amount of time they spend on video games and the concept of video game addiction, but it's still a relatively new thing. And I felt unrefined in talking to the parents about it. And I made a promise to the parents of our parent weekend that I would reach out to some experts about video game addiction and be able to provide more information. And in reaching out for experts to find someone who knew what they were talking about, I kept coming across these videos of Cam Adair. I came across his TED Talk, and he's been on all these major networks. And I went to his website, GameQuitters.com, and he was every Everywhere. He was everywhere, just popping up, popping up. I reached out to him and he agreed to be on my little old show. And in, in this process, I've come to look at what my son did with video games, looked at my own experience with video games way back in the day. We're talking Atari 5200 um, and understanding what kids are going through. And certainly in this podcast, I'll, I'll talk about some of the kids that I work with, but I want you to really pay attention to my guest because this guy is dialed in. Not only is he dialed in from his own experience, he's part of the research that's taking place now, and I'm really pleased to have my guest. Today's show is called Hit Pause For Me, and my guest is Cam Adair. This is Beyond Risk and Back. I am a teacher, teen and parent coach, internationally known trainer. I own and run a residential treatment center for teens. And best of all, I am a happy father, stepfather and husband. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Risk and Back, brought to you by Mental Health News Radio and Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center. I am your host, Aaron Huey. Beyond Risk and Back is designed for parents, clinicians, and teachers looking for support to guide the teens they care for to move forward from risky behaviors into real freedom and responsibility. Now, let's help each other get these kids back from Beyond Risk. Cam, thank you so much for being on the show. And for everybody listening, I want everybody to know that I recorded an interview with Cam and the interview got corrupted. I reached out to Cam and said, please, would you do this again? He gracefully and graciously said yes. So this is my second time in talking with this man who I'm coming more and more to adore. Cam, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Pressure's on to do it a second time. <laughs> so I want to start with a question that I didn't ask the last time. And I walked away from the conversation wondering what your answer would be. So before we get into how you ended up where you are, which apparently is everywhere, I want to know, should parents stop their kids from playing video games? It's a tough question. I think most importantly, if they're under 16, that's a very real conversation that you want to have. And for most parents, you know, kids now are, are gaming so young that, you know, that probably falls on their everyone. I think ultimately it's it's not about whether they're gaming or not. It's not even necessarily about an amount of time, but it's about what the balanced activities looks like in their life and what the impact is. And so I think too easy nowadays, you have a lot of kids who are gaming and they're gaming, 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 and that's filling all their free time and it's just developing this way where their brains are just used to instant gratification 
And that's not really serving them over the long term, right? We know research shows that people who are more focused on delayed gratification really help them be more successful. So I think for any parents out there, I think when it comes to technology, you know, smartphones, screens, iPads, gaming, a lot less is more. And for most parents, kids gaming every single day for multiple hours, like that's a lot. And I think every couple days, a little bit here and there is fine, but the priority should really be on more social activities like martial arts and group activities where they're able to kind of get out in nature and get outside the house and, and develop relationships with people outside of the gaming community. I think that's really where you want to be focusing more of your efforts. I appreciate you giving a shout out to martial arts because that's my love and joy. So I'll give a shout out to yours. I think hockey is a good idea too. Yeah. I, I mean, I played hockey for 15 years, so you have an ally in that with me. <laughs> All right, Cam, let's go back to the beginning and give us, how did you end up where you end up? How did this start? How did you know you were a video game addict? I, I want the parents to hear your story. Please tell it. Growing up, I was a fairly normal Canadian kid. You know, I went to school, played hockey, like I said, and I'd go home and game. And, you know, it wasn't really that big of a deal until the eighth grade when I began to experience a lot of bullying. And so this is something really important for parents to take away is that it wasn't necessarily gaming that ended up becoming the addiction. It was a lot more for me to escape from pain in my life. And that pain came from a lot of bullying I went through. And so the bullying caused me to no longer feel safe at school, no longer feel safe on my hockey teams. And in order to escape it, I would go and game. And so I actually ended up dropping out of high school, not once, but twice. I never graduated. And while all my friends were off to college, I was living with my parents, gaming up to 16 hours a day in their basement. I was very depressed. I experienced a lot of anxiety. I pretended to have jobs and deceived them and eventually got to a point where I actually wrote a suicide note. And that was the night when I realized, you know, I really need to make a change. And so I, I did. I started to see a counselor. He really helped me kind of find more stability and structure in my life. I got a job and you know, I began to, to see some improvements. Uh, and then I relapsed. And when I relapsed, I had kind of been feeling depressed again. This was about two years later. I was feeling depressed and this time, instead of escaping into video games, I decided to move to a new city and get a fresh start, you know, a change of scenery. I moved in with a new roommate. His name was Ben, and he was a professional poker player. And Ben and I used to play the same video game. And so he said, you know, I'm going to go buy it and we can play. And I said, you know, I really don't want to play. Like, I've quit. I've been, you know, I haven't played for two years. I'm good. And that night he came home, put the game in front of me. We played a game and he absolutely destroyed me. And when he destroyed me, that kind of hit my ego. And so I committed to doing whatever it took to ensure that he was he would never be able to beat me again. And I went from not gaming for two years to gaming 16 hours a day, every single day for five months straight. I barely left the house. I barely went to the gym. You know, I, I stopped working. I stopped doing everything. And in fact, the highlight of that time, which really kind of opened my eyes to the fact that this was a problem, was the fact that my two roommates went away for three weeks in the month of October, and I was stoked because I could game in peace without anyone kind of inviting me to go to the gym and me saying no or inviting me to go hiking or surfing and me saying no. And instead, I could just game and game and game, and no one had to see what was really going on. So obviously, during that time, getting to a point where I hadn't gamed for two years and I was fine and life was good and you know, then going to a relapse into 16 hours a day, literally overnight, I began to kind of think about what is it about these games? Like, why is it that 
I could make that sudden shift so fast. And I began to realize that there were four specific reasons why I played and they were just fulfilling certain kind of human needs I had. So the first was temporary escape. Games allowed me to escape from my problems. The second was social connection. I was gaming with friends. So it wasn't like I didn't have friends. I did have friends. They were just all gamers. The third was constant measurable growth. I got to see my growth in progress and games are specifically designed that way. And the fourth was a sense of purpose. So every day when I woke up, I knew what I needed to do because I needed to you know, beat this boss, get this weapon, beat this level. And in life, it's a lot harder to find that, right? You don't always know what to do next. Even recently here in my own life, I'm living in San Diego, California. And I kind of started to feel like I really wanted to move. I don't really know where to move though. And so I just decided to just commit to moving from San Diego. And I had all this extra time and kind of like a, an open opportunity to go anywhere. And so you know, I decided to go to Portugal for a month and then I'm on a speaking tour for a month and then I'm going to go to Australia. But like, I can do anything, right? Whereas in a video game, it's very structured. You always know what to do next. And that really helps you be able to engage in it. So it was actually those four specific reasons why I played. And just to kind of quickly wrap up, basically what happened was I shared that story online. I shared what I had learned, those four reasons why I played. And the article just blew up. And every day I was hearing from thousands of people all over the world saying, me too. They were also sharing their story, saying, I too struggle with this. And that turned into a TEDx talk that had the big response. And, you know, a couple of years after that, I decided I had a responsibility to do something more for this community. There were thousands of people all over the world asking me for help. And I owed it to them to be able to do something more. And so we launched GameQuitters.com. And now we're serving 50,000 members a month in 82 countries around the world. Do you, at Game Quitters and in your talks and in your coaching, do you preach abstinence? So we recommend a 90-day detox, which is 90 days of abstinence. And the reason is for three different reasons. Number one, the way your brain is attuned to gaming causes actual structural changes. And so if you're hearing from your kids anything like, well, gaming is just what I like to do, everything else is boring, that's actually something called numb to pleasure response. Right, so numb to pleasure response is basically gaming is hyper-stimulating, and the difference between gaming and real life is very different, especially around the immersion component. So your brain gets used to that. So there are three structural changes that happen. Number one, numb to pleasure response. Everything in life is kind of boring. Number two, hyper-reactivity to gaming, which means that gaming is really exciting and everything else is boring. And the third is just willpower erosion, which happens due to kind of changes to the prefrontal cortex, the center in your brain responsible for willpower. And so the first is just structural changes. The second, it, it takes about 90 days for your brain to come back to normal levels. The second is it takes about 90 days for you to develop real sustainable habits. We hear a lot around 21 days to build a new habit and 21 days to overcome a bad habit. But really 90 days is, is what you need for real sustainable habits, like real integration. And then the third is attachment. So, you know, after a breakup, it takes about 90 days for your body to actually detox from that past relationship. Like physically, you'll actually still crave them. You'll still desire to be around them, to, to feel their touch. And it takes about 90 days for your body to actually detox from that. And to quit gaming is actually to go through a breakup with gaming. So it takes about 90 days. And so that's what we recommend. And after 90 days, we definitely encourage them to continue not gaming. Now, some people will try it and we're not adverse to that, but we definitely encourage them to continue on the path. And most importantly, and this is a really important point for parents, most kids have never experienced what life is like without gaming. 
They've never lived without gambling. Wow, that's really they've, true. Wow. That's a money thought. That's good stuff there. They've been gaming since they were one, two, three, four, five years old, right? So they've never really had other hobbies. They've never really had a reference point in their life where they actually know what life is like without it. And so their resistance to quit comes from a, a fear of uncertainty. Like for them to quit gaming is to create a major void in their life, especially in their identity. So what we do is we say, look, I'm not going to tell you to quit forever, but I'm going to ask you to quit for 90 days. Here's the reasons why, which they're very open and willing to do, especially when they understand how the brain works. And after that, they've now experienced what life is like without gaming for 90 days. Now, from the research we've done with a professor in Australia named Dr. Daniel King, we have found that when we evaluate quality of life, so evaluating emotional health, physical health, intimate relationships, family relationships, focus, ability to think and concentrate, uh, you know, 12 different areas, the average out of 10, when someone starts the 90-day detox is about 3.5 out of 10 on a quality of life measure. At the end of 90 days, they're at a seven. All right, so we're seeing like 44% increases in time management. We're seeing like 28% increases in family relationships. We're seeing like real tangible results. And now that they've experienced that, they're less likely to go back to gaming because for them to go back to gaming is to sacrifice all these major changes that they have now experienced that actually feel a lot better than how they felt when they were gaming. Let me ask you this. Are video game manufacturers an evil empire? Is, is this an enemy that we need to rise up against? It's easy to look at drugs and the drug trade and cartels and drug dealers and traffickers and stuff like that and call them the bad guys. And with alcohol, they, we have this love-hate relationship with alcohol. Families are destroyed by alcoholism and we name football and baseball stadiums after them. Cutting certainly has this mystique around it because you can't look at a razor blade company and say, you guys are creating this product that kids are using to harm themselves. Casinos, arcades, uh, I'm sorry, casinos and uh, casino type arcades certainly have the love hate. Some people can handle it. Some people can't. Do we have an industry that we need to rail against or create some legislation around? Are video games inherently addictive? It's a really sensitive question that I will say Gaming companies intentionally design games to be more pleasurable and to hook you. And so that's not really up for debate. I don't think you find any gaming company that would try to suggest that they're not making their games as enjoyable, is, is their PC way of saying it, as possible. But games are specifically designed using state-of-the-art behavioral psychology. Gaming companies employ behavioral psychologists on their staff. So they're designing these games very intentionally. Now, whether or not they have a responsibility to their users or their community, my take on it is I'm not going to say they're evil. I'm not going to say games are bad. I'm not going to say that, you know, you should game or you shouldn't game. But what I am here to say is that I think gaming companies have a responsibility to their community as a first line of defense. So gaming companies could do a lot to say, hey, You've been gaming a lot recently, and we see it from the data, you know, is everything okay? Or as a way of saying, hey, if you're experiencing anxiety, here are some resources. If you're feeling depressed, here are some resources. There's a lot more that gaming companies could be doing to help their communities be thriving and to help their members of their community have a good quality of life and to be able to point them in the right direction if they're struggling with mental health. Because from the research we found, we have about 48% of our audience you know, who, who meet their criteria for video game addiction 
48% of them also met moderate plus for depression, right? So half of our community actually meets criteria for depression. And so a lot of these gaming companies could be doing a lot more to be just helping their communities get good resources. And instead of denying and just pretending that this isn't an issue because it obviously is an issue, it's growing, it's becoming bigger. 13% of students between grades seven and 12 have a video game problem. This isn't going away. And I think the more we can enroll, and that's the key word, enroll video game companies to be a part of this solution instead of saying, look, all gaming is bad when, you know, it's only about 10% or less of the community has a problem. But when you're looking at one and a half billion people around the world play video games, even if it's 1%, that's way too many people. So I want to help put that in perspective for parents because currently the statistics, you know, if we're talking, what, what did you say the statistics were self-reporting for video game problems, 13%? So kids between grades 7 and 12 13% report symptoms of a video game problem. And in Ontario, Canada, where the study was done recently, that was a 4% increase since 2007. On top of that, 13% was about 130,000 kids. Now, we have members in 82 countries around the world. And Ontario, Canada is one province out of 10 in Canada. So when we start tallying up 140,000 kids in one province in Canada, when we go across 10 provinces, then we add up Canada, the US, and 80 other countries that I currently have members from, we're looking at millions and millions of students. And kids in middle and high school aren't even our largest demographic. That's college students. College students so are your largest demographic. Yeah, college students. And so when we start putting these numbers together, this is millions and millions and millions of people in the world who are struggling to quit playing video games and struggling with a video game addiction. And that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of people who are gaming and they're completely fine. In fact, both exist. And what sure. I'm interested in is how do we get everyone together to help those who need help and want help so everyone else can game in peace. Okay, so we've got 13% of 12, 7th to 12th graders uh, reporting video game issues uh, is something that might fall into criteria. We have 50, 15% self-reporting, self-harming issues, cutting, burning, uh, hair pulling, these types of things. We have now in, in America, and especially in our legal friendly states, 20% with marijuana use. So it, if we also just say, hey, there's only 13% of kids who are reporting problems, well, let's go ahead and look at the other 15 that's reporting cutting and the other 20 plus percent reporting marijuana use. And then we can add alcohol. Now here's the harder drugs. And now, and then it, these numbers, I'm, I'm glad you added it up because it's not, it's not just your kid who doesn't have friends and is isolated in, in their bedrooms playing this game at all hours of night. And you're getting into fights constantly to try to get them to come to dinner and get them to even go to school. I want to I want to use this opportunity to give an example of another story. I worked with a young man whose whose mother brought him to our facility, and he was in his uh, 8 to 13 hours a day as well. Uh, he had stopped going to school. Brilliant kid. This kid was 
a brilliant, brilliant kid. And with a very doting, loving mother, a very intelligent mother, very intelligent kid, we say, okay, why is he making these choices about video games? Well, here's his backstory. When he was five years old, his dad walked into the living room, stood in front of him at a, as a five-year-old, and put a gun in his mouth and blew his brains out in front of the kid. And the bullet ricocheted and went through the wall right next to the kid's head. So now he has this memory. There's a science fiction novel, and it was a TV, science fiction TV show on BBC called Red Dwarf. And there was a video game that was the most addictive video game in the universe that they talked about and referenced and did shows about, and it was called Better Than Life. Now, the reason why I say that, the reason why I transitioned is because the mom was saying to me, I don't understand. And I said, well, let's talk about his life online. Let's talk about this game. And this kid was into World of Warcraft. In World of Warcraft, he had powers, he had resources, he had strength, and he had experience. He had a group of friends. He had missions. He had things and puzzles and problems he had to solve. And he used his power and resources and strength and magic and friends to solve these problems. And these solve these problems, when they were solved, were saving the world in this virtual world. In real life, he was an overweight kid whose father had committed suicide in front of him and was being bullied. So quite frankly, when I explained it to his mom like that, she said, his online world is better than his real life. And I said, if that's the case, which would you choose? Is it that simple? Are kids just experiencing something that's better than their life? And, and if they had a better life, they wouldn't be so attracted to video games. Well, let me give you this other example. So this is an email I got about two weeks ago from a mother. And she says, I'm a full-time mom. Our son is 14, nearly 15 years old. And I'm just going to skip through a bit, but... Our son has been playing games online, and yesterday we discovered that he had been stealing money from our wallets and spent over $3,000 buying objects within Clash of Clans. My husband and I are in shock, not only from the amount of money wasted, but also from our son lying and stealing from us. I don't know what to do. He's never been bullied. He gets straight A's in school. He goes to a private school. He's popular amongst kids, very busy with sports, gets a lot of private coaching, is a good tennis player, plays a lot of tournaments, has a lot of ambitions about the future. And he just said that, you know, for him, he never thought that he would get caught and that he was just trying to get better at the game. Wow. And that's a story that I hear all the time. I have at least three examples from just the last week alone of a teenager telling me that they stole multiple thousands of dollars from their parents to play games. Yeah, I want to say really quickly that I know that I'm an addict in recovery, and I've been in recovery for 19 years. Video games were not my drug of choice. And a couple years ago, I was doing one of those online slot machine games that they're just like Vegas. It's not designed for you to win. And it dawned on me after two weeks of playing it, it was just something I'd play before bed. It dawned on me. I woke up to the fact that I had spent $50 buying extra coins and didn't tell my wife and was starting to stress out about the fact. And I set the video game down. It, it's like I'm playing in bed and I'm like, oh my God, I haven't told my wife. And I'm walking around with this stress on how I'm going to explain it. And a lot of the feedback that you get from researchers who, who try to argue against it is things like gaming is no more addictive than eating a slice of pizza when you know we have a 70% obesity rate in this country in the right. United States. Right. So I don't know if that's really the argument you want to be making. 
know, or they make the argument that games are just fun and, you know, it, it's not addictive. But, you know, I have 50,000 members a month in 82 countries around the world saying, hey, I need help with this problem. So that speaks to it alone, right? But I think ultimately we did this research. We worked with a professor in Australia and we found that uh, the average member of our community met six and a half criteria that you just listed off for internet gaming disorder. So when it comes to the criteria itself, our members are meeting it. And I think ultimately the most important thing is just when gambling was officially recognized as a, as a disorder, as the first behavioral kind of addiction, that really opened the door for others to be diagnosable as well. And I think, you know, video games is just around the corner. I think the most important thing, though, is that we don't have to wait for, you know, some establishment organization to officially recognize it for us to be able to help people. And that's what I decided to do. And, and that's why I do the work I do, because, you know, if I was to wait for this to be officially recognized, that could be another couple of years. That's right. And yet there's all these people out there who need help. And so what I try to do is is I'm not here to argue about whether video game addiction is real or not. I'm not here to argue with that with any individual. I'm here to say, hey, look, if you struggle with this, you recognize this in yourself and you want help, I'm here and I will help you. I will help you for free. I will help you with a paid program if you want. I will coach you. I will do whatever it takes to be able to support you in the way that you need and by giving you really good resources that actually help you transform your life, whether it's gaming or anything else. And if you want help, then we are here. And we're not going to tell anyone you know, what they need to do. We're just going to be able to support them in, in the way that they're asking us to. So I think when you look at the criteria, when you look at the case studies, when you open our Game Quarters forum and you read the stories, it's so obvious. But at the end of the day, researchers are always going to be way behind the wheel. And in some ways, that's necessary, right? They have to take their time. And I understand the implications of diagnosing it, you know, for insurance and all of that. But at the same time, that's also part of why we're doing an online community where people can get support for free or they can meet other like-minded peers who can support them. So we don't need insurance in the same way because these programs don't have to cost a lot of money. Is there any danger to doing online recovery when the problem might be, you know, linked to online you know, games. And this, this is where I come back to the abstinence model. Is it just the game you're trying to get them to stop? Or is it just with nowadays, you can't keep people off the computer. There's, they're giving out iPads in school for schoolwork and et cetera, et cetera. So is it harder to recover from an online addiction when still part of your life, your work is online and even your recovery as you're suggesting? It's a great question. I'm really glad you asked it. And the truth is that it depends on the person. Now, most important to understand is a couple of things. Number one, this is where people are comfortable. They're comfortable online. And so they're far more likely to reach out for help online, and especially when they can be anonymous, than they are to go talk to someone in person. You know, the truth is that very, very few, like a very low percentage, under 10% of people who actually need help with mental health problems will even seek help. But a lot more of them will seek help online. So a lot of what we see is... People who normally would not go seek help are seeking help in our community. Now, the culture and the environment of the community, what they're learning when they are here is to go outside, 
to get off the computer, to go live their life, to have goals, to have ambitions, to develop healthy habits, to find support systems in their own life. And so it's all based around helping them really actually get out of the online world into the real world. So that's the culture of it. But beyond that, they actually get to meet a ton of people who get them, who understand them, who are like-minded peers and who can even support them in their own native languages. You know, we have members who support each other in Polish and Dutch and Chinese and Korean, Spanish, Portuguese, French, like you name it, right? You can get support even in your own native language. And that's really powerful. So, you know, no matter what, I think online programs and peer-to-peer and -peer support communities are so important because most people who need help will not seek it. But online, they will. And now that acts as a first line of defense. It acts as a as a net to be able to, to help more people, a, a larger percentage of people, instead of just hoping that they're going to walk into a therapist's office when, especially as gamers, two things. Number one, most gamers will not resonate with therapists or traditional psychologists. And that's a major thing that holds them back. You know, there's been research done by James Driver out of New Zealand who found that due to the gaming personalities the gamers have, they will not seek help in the same way because they feel stigmatized and they feel shame. And the stigma is directly linked to feeling like they're going to be judged and feeling like people who they would reach out to will not get them or understand them. So online in our community, they'll automatically not be judged and they'll be around other people who, who get them. That makes and a beyond lot of sense. That, that makes a lot of sense. And beyond that, and, you know, for any therapist listening to this, a lot, like most therapists don't really understand the gaming side, right? And I go speak oh, at therapist you. conferences. I speak at addiction conferences all the time. And I love speaking to them. And I love working with therapists because ultimately a lot of therapists are having, you know, these clients come into their offices, but they don't know what to do with them. Even just to go back to the stat I brought up earlier, which is half of our community meets moderate plus for depression. So you have, let's say a 23 year old kid, which is the average age of our community who comes into your office and he comes in for depression and you're not screening for his video game use. You could potentially be the entire piece of the puzzle, which is why he is depressed and, and why he's struggling so much in the first place or why he's having a hard time getting over it. Right. And so I, I know a lot of therapists aren't screening for it. I know that they should be. And I know that they don't necessarily know how to resonate with these personalities and, and really be able to support them. And so, you know, I'm trying to do as much as I can to help therapists understand more about this issue as well. So that, you know, even if people are coming into their office, you know, whether their parents are bringing them in or they're going in themselves, they're able to get the help that they need. Are violent video games worse? I would say when it comes to addiction, the games that we see as, as a bigger problem tend to be more multiplayer games and multiplayer games tend to kind of coincide a little bit with violence. Games like Call of Duty, games like World of Warcraft, games like League of Legends, they're not, League of Legends and, and World of Warcraft aren't particularly violent in the same way that Call of Duty is, but we do see people in our community really find social games to be a big draw because they're vast worlds where they can connect with like-minded people, right? Gaming is just the activity, but it's the function of allowing them to connect with others and to escape and be immersive and to be able to see their growth and progress. That's really why they're playing. So the violent video games tend to, you know, have some correlation I find with our community, but I do know that our community does not resonate with the argument that violence in video games is bad. 
Okay. Cam, I want to I wanna use our remaining time now to give some of the meat and potatoes. That was a big salad, but now I want meat and potatoes for the parents, for the clinicians, and for the teachers who are working with and adoring these children who they know are struggling with this stuff. So your gut has been screaming at you that your kiddo's got a problem. You're sick of the fights. You're sick of the arguments. You want to cut the cord on the thing and yank it and, and, you know, do what that father did where he took his daughter's uh, laptop and shoot it with a gun or the video of the guy running over all of his kids game with a lawnmower. And maybe that'll work. Maybe that's that, you know, that, that tough love type thing. But frankly, that's not what I subscribe to. So I'm a parent. I got a kid. I'm done with the fights. I want my kid to re-engage in life. And I come to you. What are you going to tell me to do? How do I, how do I do this next part? How do I approach my kid? What do I start with? What can I expect to see? Thank you for a great question. Uh, First, I just want to mention that for parents, we have a program online on gamequiz.com called Reclaim that teaches you what video game addiction is, why it happens and what you can do about it. So, you know, for any parents listening, I really encourage you to pick up a copy of that because it'll really good way to go about this. Now, what I can say for anyone listening, there's so many parts to this, but but the first is that don't shame or stigmatize your kid for playing video games. Video games is something very important to them. It's a core piece of their identity. It's how they're fulfilling their needs. And it's how they're relating with their world and, and their environment and their social circle. And so when you tell a 15-year-old kid to stop playing video games, what you're really telling him is to stop having friends. That's really important because if you're actually going to be able to enroll him, which is the second point, you have to enroll them in this process. But if you're going to enroll him in making a shift in this area of his life, you have to recognize that you actually need to help him be able to make new friends in things other than gaming. Because if he's going to lose all his friends, then no matter what the negative consequence is for him to be gaming, he's not going to want to give up his friends. So that's the most important thing. You have to understand that piece of their identity and attacking it is not the way to go about it. Now, there's a couple of really important points. Number one, you have to learn and identify why they play. What is it about games that they're drawn to? And you can just ask them, hey, why do you like to play? What is it about these games? Do you play with your friends? Do you like that it kind of lets you get away from stress? Do you like to see your growth and progress? Do you feel like it gives you a sense of purpose? Why do you play? Because when you remove games, you're going to have to make sure that you fill those other needs and other activities. So that's number one. Number two, identify what kind of game genres they play. So if someone plays, like let's say, a game like Call of Duty, where it's a first-person shooter, they like to beat a character. It, they're in the moment. It's like playing sports. So by identifying the type of game genre that they, they play, you'll be able to identify more of what their interests are. Let's say they play a game more like World of Warcraft. They like to play a role-playing game. They like to create a character. So for them, things like film or art or theater or drama or improv could be great because they get to take on a new character. So I find for a lot of our members, they've just never had other hobbies. And when you can help them find hobbies that are similar to what they're finding in in games, that really helps a lot. What do you do with the littler kids who are into this Minecraft? What it, you know, I love your examples of if they're into first persons, you can approach this way. If they're into the the multi-person gaming platforms and creating characters, hit them up this way. What about this Minecraft? What do you see that as? That's a huge one. Minecraft is super creative. They can essentially do anything. They can create the world to be anything they want to do. And so for that, I really think that, you know, things like programming, 
things like drawing, writing, graphic design, those are all really good ways that kind of fulfill the same thing that Minecraft does because ultimately you want to be able to find things that they can do where there's kind of limitless possibilities of creativity. So graphic design programming are two that I find a lot of our members really do enjoy. Okay. What else? What as a parent? So so I've got this. I'm getting into it. I'm I'm noticing things. I've put some other options in. What else am I looking to do? Should I refocus on the family dinners? What else is go? What else do I need to do? You have to be an example of what you're speaking to yourself. And so you know, I'll never forget. I had a comment on my TEDx talk by a girl named Caitlin who was 12 years old, and she said that my mom always tells me to stop playing video games, but she watches TV for eight hours a night. And whenever I, I bring this example up, parents get really upset. And I understand it. You know, parents are tired. They come home from the day. They're, they, they're exhausted. They have all these other things they need to do. And their kid is now, you know, they're trying to help their kid not be, not, not be gaming. So getting their kids involved, right? Whether it's having them help around the house cooking or more importantly, getting them out of the house to have these conversations. So if you're trying to have a conversation with your kid about his gaming while his gaming computer is right next to him, you're not going to, and the reason is because his brain is focused on how quickly can this conversation end so I can go back to game. So what I recommend is actually help them get out of the house, go to a Starbucks, go for a walk, get them out of the house, and then have that conversation because they'll be a lot more open to it. Specifically, their brain will be a lot more open to it. Now, you're also suggesting that, that the parents put their electronics down and actually have a conversation. And listen, I know that that makes parents upset, especially when I put it in that, but as a person who runs a facility for children who are addicts. Listening to the parents talk about, well, listen, during dinner, sometimes I get an important business call. We're missing prime communication time. So we're saying, put the screen down and we're not just talking to the kids, are we? Exactly. You have to be an example of what you're speaking to. So if you're a parent and you're trying to tell your kid that he needs to shift his behavior around technology, what example are you setting? Not only with your technology, but with your life. You're very genuinely trying to inspire your kid to live with passion and purpose. Are you living with passion and purpose? Nice. Nice. We want our kids to be outside in nature and away from screens. Are we doing that ourselves? And I think just making it a family, family activity, sorry to cut you off, but just making it a family activity, like going hiking on the weekends, trying to create more of a sense of adventure. Now I have a friend who, you know, I, I really look up to as a parent and she really tries to keep her kids on their toes so they're not doing the same thing all the time. They're they're doing different things and they're doing different activities. And some days they're allowed to kind of stay at home and some days they're off on adventures. And I think just keeping your kids on their toes more and making sure that they have a well-balanced different activities, uh, whether it's martial arts or rock climbing or uh, things that are social uh, group activities or just taking them hiking and, and taking them outside and getting in nature and, you know, just going exploring, I think can really help a lot. And and we'll really enroll your kids in, in that experience. I think if we're going to expect our kids to put their smartphones or their pads up on the kitchen counter for charging, starting at a certain time of night, parents' phones need to go up too. Because at nighttime, regulating our systems and getting read, ready for bed, getting our systems ready for bed, all the research is very clear. The screens don't help us fall asleep. Anybody can try to justify that, but they don't. Reading does, music does, conversations do, but I think it's time for for the whole family to put their phones up on the kitchen counter under the charge them and leave them be. We can answer the phone tomorrow. So Cam, this is this is such a, a wonderful conversation. 
I feel like you're really out there on the on the front line of this stuff. Um, GameQuitters.com is that the best place for parents to find you and go to get support? And if I'm a kid who's or you know a 23 year old young adult and I'm like, man, I gotta I got issues. I I need help. Is is that the site to hit up? Yeah. So whether you're a parent or or you're a kid and a gamer yourself, GameQuitters.com. Game quiz on YouTube will help you a lot. If you're a parent, I can't stress enough. The reclaim program is there. It's it's what I've poured my heart into to be able to help answer a lot of these questions for you. And it really helps us out a lot. And for kids, there's a program called Respawn that walks them through step by step exactly what they need to do to be able to quit playing video games and get their life back on track. And there's a contact button on there. So, you know, any questions at all, just hit that. And I'd love to to answer your questions. I'd love to talk to you, hear your story. And if I can support you at all, please let me know. I love to speak in schools and, and all over, you know, therapists, et cetera, et cetera. So any way I can support this issue and this cause, I'm there. I really love it and just can't thank you enough for, for helping to spread the word and, and sharing my story. Of course. And parents and professionals, Cam has a ton of videos. He is a major resource everywhere you turn. There he is, Huffington Post, CNN. Cam is on there. He's bringing a lot of attention to this to this issue. As a person who runs a facility for teenagers, I have worked directly for these kids. I can tell you from personal experience, it is no different than any other addiction issue. And it is rooted in something beyond the thing these kids are addicted to. Cam, I appreciate you so much. I'm rooting from you afar. From afar, I'll be I'll be pushing this podcast out there as much as I can. And thank you so much for your gracious kindness to to do this again after the last one is corrupted. It meant a lot to me. Of course, man. Thanks for the great work you do and, and hope to hang out in, in person someday. Yeah, hey, Boulder is all the Boulder boomerang is always inviting you back. You know that, and uh, I'm a uh, I'm an old hockey player myself. So maybe if we do get to meet, we can we can slap some stick. Oh, I'd love it. All right, Cam. Thank you so much, parents, professionals. This is a real issue. This is a big deal. But for now, I want to remind you with the mantra, take care of yourself first, take care of your adult relationships second, and take care of your children third, because in that way, we do our best work with our children. I want to give a thanks to everybody at Mental Health News Radio for all their hard work and the boss goddess over there, Kristen Walker, who's just providing an amazing, amazing channel for people out there. This has been Beyond Risk and Back. I'm Aaron Huey, and we will talk again soon. Thank you for joining us at Beyond Risk and Back. Support for parents, clinicians, and teachers. Join us at beyondriskandback.com. You can download past episodes there. Visit Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center's website for information, support, and continuing education trainings for parents and professionals at www.firemountainprograms.com. You can also connect with me directly on Facebook by searching at Beyond Risk and Back. You can also follow me on Twitter, catch me on YouTube, and join me here every week for another podcast. This is Aaron Huey saying, remember, take care of yourself first, your adult relationships second, and your children third, because in that way, we do our best work for the children. Thank you for listening, and we will talk again soon.